I'd like you to open in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. There was a rebirth of interest in the human anatomy during the Renaissance period. That was a time when they introduced the autopsy. It might interest you that Leonardo da Vinci actually performed 30 autopsies. Michelangelo did some autopsies. History tells us that the first autopsy was performed publicly in 1315. However, I found history to be wrong because the first autopsy was performed by Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And this is a spiritual autopsy. Christ performs an autopsy on the dead church, and that's the church in Sardis. You know, there's something very disturbing about using those two words, church and dead, in the same breath. Because a church is an assembly of spiritually alive individuals. A church is a group of people who possess eternal life. And the church should be the farthest thing from death, and yet in Sardis, the church was dead. Alfred Joyce Kilmer had a way of writing poetry that was simple and yet meaningful. He's the one who wrote, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. But he also wrote this poem, Whenever I walk to suffering along the weary track, I go by a poor old farmhouse with its shingles broken and black. I suppose I've passed it a hundred times, but I always stop for a minute and look at that house the tragic house, the house with nobody in it. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there's something more tragic than a house without life, and that's a church without life, a church where nobody's home. And by church, I don't mean a building. I mean a group of people, where people sing and people preach and people pray and people go through the motions but they're dead. And that was true of the church in Sardis. We have the coroner's report in verse 1 of chapter 3. And the last few words of verse 1 say, and you are dead. This is the dead church. This is the church in a coffin. It was located in Sardis. Sardis was about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. And it was the oldest city in this area due to the fact that it had an ideal location for a city. It was built atop a plateau jutting out from Mount Timolus, about 1,500 feet from the plain below. It was like a giant watchtower sitting there on the hill. It was a very fortified city. Approaching armies had no way to reach it. It was once the capital of the vast empire of Lydia. Sardis was the first place in history where we can find coins being minted in silver and gold. Uh, that's where you, if you ever had one of those old coins like a 1951 S, it was minted in Sardis. <laughs> it was one of the first places where money was used as a medium of exchange. It was a very affluent city known for its luxury, known for its prosperity. Croesus one of its ancient kings became a byword for wealth and prosperity. When somebody was very wealthy, they would say, he's as rich as Croesus. 
And along with the riches came a lifestyle. Those in Sardis were notorious for their loose living, for their love of pleasure, for their decadence. And Sardis looked like the place to live until you were there for a while. And then you found it to be rather empty and rather shallow. Many outside Sardis pointed to it with contempt, saying the people there were not what they were cut out to be. They were complacent. They were full of promise, yet unfulfilled, which is much like the church that was located there. We don't know who started the church. We don't know how. The major fact that we know about this church was that it was dead. And notice how Christ addresses it in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Christ identifies himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And this is taken from John's vision in chapter 1. And there we said that the seven spirits referred to the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit as it's outlined in Isaiah chapter 11. The seven stars are defined for us in chapter 1 and verse 20 as the seven angels are the seven messengers to the churches. And so Christ, as he writes to this dead church, reminds him, them that he is the one, the one communicating to them through the seven messengers is the one who possesses the Spirit of God. You know, the medical community today argues about what constitutes death. And there's an argument about whether death occurs when your brain ceases. You're in the medical community, aren't you? <laughs> whether death occurs when your brain ceases or when your heart stops. And there's this big debate about what constitutes death. Death really occurs when your spirit leaves your body. And you can argue about whether your brain stops or your heart stops or who stops. But when your spirit is separated from your body, that's when death occurs. Death is the separation of the immaterial person from the material person. You could cut my arm off today and take it out of the room. I'd still be alive. I'd be hurting, but I'd still be alive because that wouldn't constitute death. Take part of my body away, it doesn't kill me. But separate my spirit from my body, and that's death. And so it's interesting, as Christ writes to this dead church, the body of Christ... He reminds them that he is the one who holds the Spirit of God. That's what they're missing. They're a dead church. They don't have the directing, the leading, the involvement of the Spirit of God. And so as he writes to them, that's what he emphasizes. He's the one communicating to them through the seven messengers, and he holds the answer. He holds the solution, which is the Spirit of God. And what does Christ say to this church? We'll use the same outline we've been using to the, in the other letters. He gives a commendation, his condemnation, his counsel, and his challenge. First of all, a commendation. Notice again verse 1. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, and you are dead. Now, there's really no commendation there. Christ has nothing good to say about this church. The only positive thing he's going to say is to a minority in the church in verse 4. Here in verse 1, all he can say positively is, you've got a good name. Your name says you're alive. Now, if you came to Sardis 
on a Sunday and looked in the yellow pages under churches, you might find them listed there as the living tabernacle of the resurrected Lord or something. He says, you got a good name. Your name says you're alive. And in this concept of a good name implies also not only that their name said that they were alive, but that they had a good reputation. Among people around them, they were held in high esteem. They were held as a church that was alive. And so Christ says, you have a good name. Your name is fine. Your name says you're alive. The problem is that you're dead. And that's his condemnation. This was a dead church. They sang, but there was no song. They prayed, but there was no real prayer. They met, but there was no fellowship. They preached, but there was no power. They performed, but there was no purpose. The Spirit of God wasn't there. This is a dead church. You know how you recognize a dead church? There are no signs of life. And what are the signs of life? One of the signs of life is growth. Living things grow. And a living church grows numerically and spiritually. The individuals are becoming mature and they're growing in number. You have growth. A a living church reproduces itself. There should be people being saved in a living church. And a living church should produce fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control, the fruit of the Spirit produced in a living church. Ed Leone and I are neighbors from a distance. And uh, we, we planted a dogwood tree on our property line about a year and a half ago. It's probably the largest dogwood tree in southeast Missouri. We think it is. Um, the only problem is about... Eight months ago, it died. And it's beautiful. It, it comes up, the branches are, it's very ornate. It's a, it's a gorgeous tree. And neither one of us has really had the gumption to go out there and cut it down. But it, it looks good in the wintertime, though, you know, because it looks like the other trees. But there it stands, and, and uh, it, it's very impressive from a distance. And when you get near, you realize there's nothing to that tree. And that's really what he's saying about the church in Sardis. You have a wonderful name that you're alive, but you're dead. Came across a report of one church that it sent to its denominational headquarters some time ago. And their report read like this, We report no new members, no baptisms, no evangelism program, no special gifts to missions. And then at the bottom they put this, Brethren, Pray for us that we may be faithful till the end. The end. It's over. When you're not doing any, when nothing's happening, when there's no life there, that is the end. They just need to lock the doors. And there are many churches like that today. And that was true of the church in Sardis. You want to know how to kill a church? I'll tell you how. If you ever want to kill a church, here's how to do it. Number one, put people in leadership who aren't believers. 
pick people who may be leaders in the community or leaders in work and let them become leaders in the church. And when you have leaders who have no life, you'll have a lifeless church. I've had uh, some salesmen coming by uh, to get us to make a pictorial directory for our church. And they left me with some copies of these pictorial directories, some local ones. It was very fascinating for me to go through some of the churches in Cape and look through their pictures. And I was, to be honest with you, a little bit shocked and alarmed by who some of the leaders are because I know them. And I know them not to be believers, and yet I look in there and here they are, the leaders in the church. And I say to myself, if that's a leader in the church, then that's not a church that's being led in a direction that God would be pleased with. That's how you make a dead church. There are other ways to kill a church, and that is hang on to tradition more than you hang on to Christ. Be inflexible. Resist change. Find something that works and then hang on to it and say, if it worked once, it'll work forever. And hang on to the form rather than to the reality. If you want to kill a church, become more concerned about welfare and social ills than you do about salvation. Try to change somebody on the outside rather than change them on the inside. If you want to kill a church, become more concerned with material things than you are with spiritual things. Become more concerned with the physical plant than with the spiritual plant. If you want to kill a church, don't pass on any responsibility to young people. As I travel around, I often see one-generation churches. Whoever developed it hangs on to the, the power and the, and the leadership, and they get older and older and older, and they eventually die, and they never develop any other leaders to take their place. They never pass on any responsibility to young people. I was excited to go over to Carbondale last week and saw that they're already <coughs> handing down. These guys are my age. They're already handing over the baton to some younger guys who are, they're developing in leadership, and that's an exciting thing to see. If you want to kill a church, just reach a com comfortable size and then say, we four, no more, shut the door. We're satisfied. This is the perfect size. Let's just enjoy ourselves and become a little clique, and that's how you kill a church. If you want to kill a church, just develop a critical spirit and start to find things to criticize and gossip about. And pretty soon you will do what Paul warns us against in Romans chapter 14. And he says, if you don't build up the church, you will tear down the work of God. If you want to kill a church, what you really have to do is, is simply allow sin to come into your life and your heart and your your church because sin is really what kills a church. It's like erosion. It just erodes away at a church until it's finally killed the church. James gave us that equation in James chapter 1. He said, when lust conceives, it gives birth to sin, and when sin has, has, is accomplished, it brings forth death. Sin leads to death, and so sin will kill a church. 1 Timothy 5, 6 talks about a widow who gives herself to wanton pleasure and is dead even while she lives. She's living physically, but spiritually speaking, she is dead. And so it happens with individuals and it happens with churches. And the church in Sardis was just going through the motions. They had activity, 
they were dressed up, they were organized, but they were dead. And that's what Christ tells them in verse 1. Now, if you or I were writing to the church at Sardis, we would probably stop after verse 1 and go on to the church at Philadelphia. But Christ in grace doesn't do that. He has a message for the dead church. And that's his counsel. And if you find yourself in a similar position, maybe you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ, then spiritually speaking, you're still dead and Christ wants to bring you to life. If so, this message is for you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer, but everything in your life points, all the signs in your life point to death. This message is for you as well. Christ gives us His counsel. And there are five commands in verses 2 and 3. You can pick them out. He says, wake up, strengthen. Verse 3, remember, keep, and repent. Five quick commands that he gives to the church at Sardis. Number one, he says, wake up. You know, churches that are dead oftentimes don't know it. Just as individuals who are dead oftentimes don't know it. So the first command Christ gives is to wake up, to be alert, to shake yourself loose, to be sensitive to what's really going on in your life. You know, I find it so easy to become spiritually indifferent and spiritually insensitive and spiritually dull. And I need the exhortation to wake up a lot of times in my life. It's easy to be wide awake to physical things and sound asleep to the spiritual realm. And Christ writes to this church and He says, I want you to wake up to what's really going on around you. And then secondly, he says, strengthen. Verse 2, strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. Build up the things that remain, the things that haven't eroded yet. Christ says to this dead church, there are some things that haven't decayed yet. And I want you to find those things and strengthen them, shore them up, fortify them. Why? He says at the end of verse 2, For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. I think the King James says perfected. That word is better translated completed. Christ says you're not finished yet. The work isn't done. Now apparently this church at one time had been a vital, living, thriving church, but no more. They were now dead. They had become complacent. They had become satisfied with what they had done in the past. They were resting on their laurels. And I've been in churches like this where you talk to them and everything they talk about is in the past tense. All the blessings of God were way back there. And nothing's really happening today. And Christ says to this church, I want you to get busy. You're not finished with the work I've given you. You know, the Christian life is described as a race. It's described as a long-distance race. And I find that the further I get along in the race, the easier it is to want to just rest on what I've done in the past. The, the more tempting it is to get to a certain point and just kind of retire from the Christian life and cruise on in. And Christ reminds this church, He says, you're not finished yet. Your work is not completed. If it was completed, I'd take you home. 
You've got something left to do. And so he he speaks to them in verse 2 and he says, wake up and then I want you to strengthen those things that remain. And then thirdly, he says, remember. In verse 3, remember two things. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. I want you to, first of all, remember what you have received. What have we received as Christians? We have received salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, an inheritance, love, grace, mercy, peace, all those blessings that God has given us. And we can actually get to the point where we are so atrophied that we can't even remember anymore. He says, I want you to remember what you have received. And then secondly, he says, I want you to remember what you have heard. Remember all the truth that has passed through those ears. You know, most Christians don't need to hear a new message. We just need to remember what we've already heard. And I was reminded last week when I was asked to go over and speak in Carbondale, usually when somebody asks me to go somewhere and speak, I immediately try to find something they've never heard. I find, maybe I can find another book you know, in here that nobody's ever heard about, and I can give them some new message, and then the Lord inevitably comes to me and says, just go over there and tell them what they already know. Because that's what we need to hear. We need to be reminded of the things that we know but haven't put into practice. And that's why the fourth thing that the Lord gives by way of command to this church is, He says in verse 3, and keep it. I want you to remember what you've heard and then I want you to keep it. Have you ever sat and listened to a message and been challenged by a message and said to yourself, I'm going to go out of here and I'm going to do this and I'm going to be that and you walk out and you never apply it to your life Christ says to this church I want you to remember what you've heard and I want you to keep it I want you to look at a verse with me in Ezekiel chapter 33 actually three verses these are three verses that are really challenged to me Ezekiel chapter 33 The Lord is speaking to Ezekiel here. And it's interesting to see what he says to him. Verse 30 of Ezekiel 33. But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses... Speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. Everybody was talking about Ezekiel, saying, you got to come hear this guy. Verse 31, And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, but they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. And behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not practice them. Everybody's saying, you've got to hear Ezekiel. And everybody's coming in, and it's like you've got a wonderful voice playing a wonderful instrument, and they all say, we just love to hear that. But God says, they don't take what they're hearing and apply it to their lives. That was the problem in Sardis. And as the Lord Jesus addresses them in Revelation chapter 3, He says, I want you to remember what you've heard, and I want you to keep it. 
And then he has a final word by way of counsel, and that is a word that we've heard so oftentimes in these letters, and that is the word repent. I want you to remember, I want you to keep it, and I want you to repent. And the word repent simply means to turn around. To turn away from your sin, to turn away from the direction that you're going, and turn to Christ. Because Christ is the only one who can bring life out of death. You say, well, what, what if I don't? What if I don't wake up and strengthen the things that remain and remember what I've heard and apply it and repent? What if I don't do that? Well, Christ has an answer to that at the end of verse 3. He says, if therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. Strong warning. Christ says, I will come like a thief. And to those in Sardis, this was a vivid picture because they lived on this huge plateau and they had a very fortified city and they thought that nobody could get to them. In fact, in 549 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus came against Sardis and he came up against the city and had this huge plateau and, and he couldn't really attack the city and so he told any of his men that he would give them a great reward if they could find a way to get into the city and many men tried and failed, and one man in particular watched the city for a long time, and he saw one of the soldiers on the wall drop his helmet, and he watched that helmet as it fell, and it rolled down that plateau. And as he watched it roll down, he found a path where he could get up. And in the middle of the night, he led the army up the hill to conquer the city. And so this was a very vivid concept that I'm going to come as a thief in the night and overcome you. And that's Christ's warning to the dead church if they fail to repent. And then fourthly, he has his challenge in verses 4 to 6. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. There was a remnant within this dead church that was alive. They hadn't soiled their garments. They hadn't become entrenched in sin. And of course, in Scripture, you'll find over and over again the garment is used to refer to a person's character. In the Christian life, we're to be putting off the old wardrobe and putting on the new wardrobe. Uh, Isaiah 64 says, All our righteous deeds are as filthy garments, filthy garments depicting our sin, our character. In Jude 23, it says, We're to hate even the garment polluted by the flesh. Later in Revelation 19.8 it says, It was given to her, the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. And then it says the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The church is called the bride of Christ. And before we came to faith in Christ, our righteousness was like filthy garments. When we've come to faith in Christ, we are... Our righteous acts make up our wedding gown. And in the church at Sardis, most of the people had filthy rags. But there were a few who had not soiled their garments. You say, well, why didn't those few leave the church? Why didn't they go somewhere else? Well, you know, in the first century, there wasn't anywhere else to go. In every city, there was only one church. And so those who were faithful stayed in this church because that was their only option. They couldn't go down the street 
to another church. And so they stayed there. And there was this faithful remnant within that church. And Christ has a promise for them. In verse 5, He promises them three things. He says, He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. That's a beautiful promise. For those who haven't soiled their garments, He says, You're going to walk with Me in white garments. And that's the picture of a wedding day. The bride being dressed in white. And then there's a second promise. He says, And I will not erase his name from the book of life. Now a lot of people have struggled with that statement. And saying, since Christ said, I will not erase your name from the book of life, does that mean that he does erase some people from the book of life? I have trouble with that concept because if perseverance, if it takes perseverance to keep me in the book of life, then perseverance would have to put me in the book of life. And if it takes perseverance to get into the book of life, I never would have gotten in in the first place. And Christ is not talking here about cutting somebody off from salvation. He must be talking about something different. Um, some have suggested that everybody gets their name in the book of life because Christ died for the entire world. In fact, 1 John 1, 1 John 2, 2 says, He himself is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And it may be that everybody's name appears initially in the book of life because Christ died for everyone. And when we refuse to accept him, then our name is taken out of that book. That may be. Um, I tend to think he's, he's making a reference here to possibly a local custom, which at that time they had a registry in the cities. And when somebody moved or somebody died, they would blot you out. The king would blot you out of his registry. And uh, possibly even this dead church had a registry that they blotted certain people out of their registry. And Christ is simply saying, the king may blot you out of his, his registry and the church may blot you out, but I will never blot you out of my book. And so the promise is, you will walk in white garments with, you, with me and I will not erase your name from the book of life. And then there's a third promise. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus says, Everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I will confess him before my Father. And in Luke 12, 8, he says, Everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man shall confess him also before the angels of God. Think about it. Jesus is going to confess you before his Father and before the angels the way you confess him before men today. If Jesus confesses you before all heaven the way you confess him before all earth, what's it going to be like? Is Jesus going to be up there saying, you know, the Father says, well, who's that? And you go, or Jesus is going to go, oh, uh, well, uh, I don't know, this is just 
just a guy, just somebody, you know, this is just a friend, somebody I met along the way. Is that what he's going to have to do? Is that what we do with Jesus now? He says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before all heaven. What an exciting thing to get to, to heaven and have the Lord Jesus say, Father, angels, Dan Green, he's mine. What an exciting concept. And Jesus says, if you will confess me today, I will confess you before all heaven in that day. Did you notice as we went through this letter that there's a real emphasis on the word name? It appeared in verse 1. It says, you have a name that you are alive and you are dead. It appeared in verse 4 where it says, but you have a few, literally you have a few names in Sardis. It appears in verse 5 where it says, I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my Father. Real emphasis on the word name here. And then he closes with that familiar exhortation, verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Can you hear the Spirit of God today? Maybe you're here and you've never accepted Christ. You're still dead. Maybe you confess to be a Christian. You've got a name that you're alive. But in reality, there's no spiritual life there. You can come to Christ today. And you can not only have a name that you're alive, but you can be alive. And maybe you're here this morning and you've accepted Christ, but your deeds would indicate otherwise. And maybe you need Christ's exhortation to wake up and to strengthen the things that remain and to remember what you've heard and to apply it to your life and to repent. I don't know about you, but I want Christ to come as my bridegroom and not my thief. I want Him to come and, and dress me in the white garments and confess my name before all heaven. That's His promise to us. And we can have that if we will heed His commands this morning. I don't want to have just a name that says I'm alive. I want to be alive. I want my autopsy report to say, risen, ascended, seated in Christ, alive. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this message to the dead church. And Father, to some degree, we can all relate to this. And Lord, I just pray that we might truly never come to the point in our Christian life where we think we're finished. Lord, exhort us by Your Word to continue on and to finish the course that You've laid out for us. And Lord, if there are any here today who may be confused about whether they're really believers, they may have a name that they're alive, they may call themselves Christians, but maybe have never come into that relationship with You. Lord, I pray that You would today just cut into their hearts and draw them to Yourself and give them true life, eternal life from You. I just thank You for this passage and pray, Lord, that we might not just hear it today, but that we might apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.